Storyteller Being the Wanderings of Gwyneth Giarwood by G.R. Grove Part 1 A Circuit Around Wales Ante Widian Gorai Giarwood and a Bead Void And he, Gwydion, was the best teller of tales in the world. Chapter 1 Ghosts Blood and fire, gold and steel and poetry, a river's voice in the silence of the night, and the shining strings of a harp. All these and more I have known in my time. Steep mountains, dark forests, and the endless song of the rain. Music and laughter and feasting in the fire-bright halls of kings. A dusty road and a fast horse and a good friend beside me and the sweet taste of the mead of Dunedin with its bitter aftermath. A dragon's hoard of memories I have gathered, bright-colored as a long summer's day. Now they are all gone, the men and women I knew when I was young, gone like words on the wind, and I am left here in the twilight to tell you their tale. Sit then and listen, if you will, to the words of Gwernon Kiarwood, called Storyteller. The place which men call Carleon, the city of the legions, lies on the low banks of the River Wisk, not far from the sea in South Wales. Even when I first came there it was ruinous, and that was a long lifetime ago. But many men's lifetimes had already passed since the eagles who built it flew south from Britain and left us on our own to sink or swim as we could against the Saxon tide. Arthur held them for a while, checked their advance and forced them back into their beach hoods of the south and east, and gave us time to breathe. But Arthur died at Camlin three years before I was born, and how long now we can hold the crumbling sea wall he built is anyone's guess. Many a kingdom has gone under already, Many a fair fortress lies now beneath that wave. I wonder if I shall not before I die see my fair Pingran herself laid waste and Kennan's halls home to the wolf and the raven. But I was speaking of Kershion and the wonder that lies there. I saw it first on a mild evening in late spring when my friend Yen and I came humping our packs over the last hill crest to the east, and saw the hearth smoke rising from amongst the grey stone ruins at either end of the bridge. Time had not treated Kershion kindly. The villagers' huts, for the most part, were reed-thatched shells of houses that had once been crowned in red tile, with wattle and daub filling gaps here and there in their crumbling walls. Only a few buildings near the river gate were still in use. The rest of that stone-walled enclosure was full of broken rubble half grown up in alder and oak scrub, a tangled wilderness where once were only the straight lines that the Romans so loved. In the midst of it all crouched a great brown block like a small hill, its top green with grasses and willow herb, a silent presence brooding over all the rest. Tumble-down walls and fortresses I had seen before, 
Indeed, I was born in one, though I remember little enough of it, before the black year came to sweep away that life and send me to my aunt's house in Pinguern. But this was something new beyond my previous experience, and as always, I hungered to know more. First, however, there was the question of lodgings for the night. The inn at the east end of the bridge was still open and doing business, and there Yin and I made our way. It seemed strange to me, new to the road as I was, to be paying for the food and lodging, which my people would have given freely to any passing traveler. But as Yin had explained to me, such a small place, home to no great lord, and yet located on one of the main trackways used by the merchant kind, could not be affording unpaid hospitality to all comers. Besides, the excellence of the landlord's ale was legendary, and well worth the small coins we exchanged for it and our supper, with the promise of more to come if my tales pleased an audience that night. After we had struck our bargain and eaten our supper of stew and barley bread, washed down by some of that famous ale, I left my friend chatting amiably in the tap room and wandered out again, heading for the great ruinous hulk that had earlier caught my eye. Baz, the landlord had called them, built like everything else here by the Romans. Palaces, I thought, as I stood staring up at them from the edge of a patch of waste ground, might have been a better term. Fully two score paces in length and perhaps half as, as wide, and tall as the lordliest ash tree that graces the slopes of Poes, the baths dwarfed any king's house that I had yet seen. Their towering walls gazed back at me out of the twilight, pierced with dark window openings that gaped like empty eyes. I returned their stare thoughtfully, but curiosity still won out. Crossing the waste ground where the soldiers had raced and wrestled, I picked my way forward over broken stone, clogged with blown dirt and white with bird droppings, until I stood within the gloomy vault itself. Around me the red brick walls rose up, towering into owl-haunted cliffs and caverns, while beneath them the scummy pools of the baths themselves lay gleaming here and there like tarnished mirrors. There was a strong smell of must and decay, and a sense of ghosts watching from behind one's shoulder. Almost it might have been the mouth of a fairy mound, a gateway to Anun itself, and the wonders that lay there, or so I thought at the time. The silence was eerie, with a faint echo in it as of the wind, or the sea in a shell, or distant music so that when a bit of stone dislodged by who knows what dropped from somewhere above and plopped into one of the pools near me, I jumped and, stumbling on the uneven footing, found myself almost over the edge before I knew it. As I teetered on the brink, I dimly saw a leering face with snakes for hair peering out at me from among the broken tiles at my feet and in the roof above me I heard a rustle of wings. Then the owl came gliding down, silent as a ghost. Like a pale shadow she came, 
and passed so close I could feel the chill breath of her wings as they stroked the air, and see her golden eyes, bright in the white mask of her face. She sailed through one of the empty window vaults and was gone, and the huge cold room seemed the darker and more threatening for her leaving. Yet I stood my ground for a moment more, waiting for I knew not what, and at last it came, one white feather floating slowly down to land at my feet. I bent and picked it up. It lay light in my hand, soft and weightless as a scrap of silk, real as a memory. I put it in my belt pouch for safety and came away. I had seen enough to slake my curiosity for that night. Behind me in the darkness I could feel the ghosts of the soldiers still watching as I went, but they were silent. Outside the twilight seemed brightest day by comparison, the air incredibly fresh and sweet, heavy though it was with the evening scents of wood smoke and cow buyers. I looked back once from the bridge at the towering ruin, looming against the last of the sunset like a young hill. Already those who should know better are beginning to say, that the paths are really the ruins of Arthur's palace, built for him in the space of a night by magic, built, so they say, by the king's bard himself, using nothing but harp song and moonlight and a strong spider's web of spells to bind it all in place. Travelers' tales are stories for children, but still, on that quiet evening it seemed almost possible. And who should know better than I what feats music may encompass? That night I earned my ale in the tap room with the tale of Gwydion the magician and Blodiath, the woman, if she was a woman, who became an owl. And later in my sleep I could swear I heard the beat of ghostly wings. All this seems a small story to relate a small thing to remember after so many years. And yet it sticks in my mind for many reasons, not least because of what came after, when I came to know in truth, in bone and blood and spirit, the real cost and meaning of the gates of Anun. But that, O oh my children, is a story for another day. Chapter 2. The Cloak Clasp Nowadays I often find, looking back, that the years and journeys blend together, so I can no longer be sure as to which time or place many of my memories belong. One day on the road is much like another, within the usual gamut of heat and cold, dust and mud, sun and rain and snow, one rough lodging much like the next. Even the faces blend together over the years, various and individual though they all are, bright with interest in my performance or dull with boredom, young or old, sober or drunken, ill or well. But at the time of which I speak, I was still new to the road and to my trade, and every day was an adventure, every night a fresh excitement as I stretched my growing abilities. So it was with Cerdiz, my first big festival, Every detail of it is still clear in my mind, bright as a fresh-opened flower, 
not only for its own sake, but also for what came after. We arrived there on a fine spring day, not long after our stop at Kerlion. Indeed, it was for Cardiz we had been making all the while, and the great Beltane Fair that was held there every spring, when the roads and the seas first opened to travelers and traders. Many of them came, as we did, to set up their booths by the strand, and there I first stared open-mouthed at two things I had never seen before, the sea and the ships that lived and traveled on her back. It was the sea that caught me first, the sea of which I had heard so often in the tales. On the sea the Romans had come to Britain, and over it they had sailed away. On the sea Maxim Ledig had come to us, and over it he had gone when he left, taking many of our warriors with him to settle less Britain. Yes, and older still, Bran the Blessed had crossed the sea to rescue his sister from Ireland, and into the sea had gone Dillon Alton after his birth, to bide there with his great seal father, and rule over it in his turn. And over the sea, more prosaically, had come the foreign traders with their bright wares to the Beltane Fair at Cardiz. That afternoon, the sea near the mouth of the Severn stretched broad and blue away from me, wind ruffled into short, sharp waves, hiding infinite possibilities. The tide was out and the smell of mud and fish and seaweed, and who knows what besides, was strong in the warm spring air, and the sky above loud with the crying of gulls. Three or four small boats were lying beached on the mud, while other larger ships swung at anchor some way out. Above the tide line, fishermen and traders alike had set up booths and tents, and a busy market was already in progress. I followed ye in as he worked his way through the crowd, a thin crowd as yet, but was early in the fair looking for a place to set out his wares. This early in the year, his stock consisted mostly of small light items of bone and horn and wood, double-sided combs, elaborately carved and decorated, pins for the cloak or the hair, painted or wound with wire, cases for brown's needles, and small trinket boxes for a lady's treasures. Rings, too, he had, and a few bracelets, fashioned of twisted copper or silver wire. Yin himself had made most of them during the winter, working steadily through the short days and long nights by the fire. Now he would trade them, if he could, for other small light things of greater value, brought by the traders from overseas, to carry with us on our travels and sell or trade again along the way. Not until autumn would we go home to Pinguern. In the meantime, here at Cardiz, there was the Beltane Fair to enjoy and the competitions to look forward to. Christian though these lands were then, at least in name, yet most of us held also by the old festivals, which are the rhythm of the land and the seasons. And Beltane has always been one of the great festivals, the spring festival that follows the first plowing. There would be days and days of celebration, and meat and drink in plenty. Plenty of employment, too, for storytellers and minstrels such as we. 
whether because of its position on the coast of South Wales, a popular landfall for traders on their way to Ireland, because there had already been a settlement there when the Romans came. Cerdith had fared better than her sister Cerdion, having been taken over by the local chief as a strong point, rather than being left to fall to ruin. Some of the buildings in the fort had been maintained, and it was one of these, on the last night before Beltane, that a storytelling competition took place. For, as you know, many tales, winter tales, should only be told in the dark half of the year, between Salvan and Beltane. There it was that I first stood up to speak in contest, to be judged against my peers. Well, I remember the flickering firelight on the roughly plastered walls and blackened roof beams of that hall, and on the watching faces of my audience, glinting on here a fine shoulder brooch, and there a gilded bracelet, as the owners moved. I remember the patter of rain on the roof tiles, and the barking of dogs outside the hall, and the smell of the blue wood smoke from the central hearth fire that eddied now and then into my face and stung my eyes. I remember the listening silence of that crowd of men and women and children, broken from time to time by a cough or the scrape of a bench, and the beating excitement in me, half fear and half exultation, as I first told my tale before so many, weaving with all my skill a net of words to catch and hold their interest. I wish I could say that I won that contest, but I am sworn to keep the truth in these tales. So far as the truth may be known, for often it seems to me to change with the observer. No, I did not win, but my performance was well received and toasted afterwards by one of the local lords who gave me a ring brooch from his own shoulder in token of his approval. A simple thing it was, but pleasant, made of good bronze with a red enameled design covering the two terminals of the ring and the base of the pin. It had been fashioned at his own court of Dennis Poes, a short journey to the south and west from Cerdith. I wonder now, looking back, if it was not my choice of a tale told often in his home country that commended me to him as much as my expertise. However that may be, it was my first such moment of recognition, and shines the brighter in my memory because of it. Though I have since had many finer jewels, I still keep that brooch as a talisman. Worth is not always measured in weight of gold. It was the same Lord Doveth of Dennis Poes, who that night issued a general invitation to all the bards and storytellers there, to join him at his court for a few days after the fair ended. For, he said, it is seldom I have the enjoyment of such an array of riches as you have spread before me here, and I would fain keep it for a little longer. Moreover, I currently have no bard in my hall, and must needs choose one soon. And he grinned, lest my word fame be lost and my name vanish with me. So it happened that on the day after the fair, Yen and I and several others were making our way up the steep track which led to Dennis Poes, a track deep-rutted 
from the wagon loads of wine barrels and oil jars that had come up from the harbor earlier in the week to gladden the hearts of the merchant kind. Yin was in a good mood for a change, for his trading had gone well, and our packs rode the lighter on our shoulders for it. He was a quiet man as a rule, given to gloomy silences, but that day he spoke more than usual, asking the others with us about their travels and about the temper of the country that spring. Quiet enough so far, said Kinnan Gok, a red-headed man from Dumnonia in southwest Britain. The Saxons will likely be stirring again before long, though. Still, I suppose we should be grateful for such peace as we have. Ah, but where is the glory in peace? asked another. No warfare, no glory. No glory, no need for bards to sing it. No need for bards, and we are on the road again. And he laughed. Nah, there will always be need for bards, said Kennan. If not to sing the warrior's deeds now, then to remember those who fought before, and teach those who will fight afterwards the way of it. There is always need for songs of Arthur and Maxim Ledig and those who went before. One way and another there must always be bards, as long as the earth stands and the stars shine above it and the gray sea surrounds us. We are like the pin in the cloak clasp, and he touched the great brooch on his shoulder. The smallest, plainest part, and yet without it the brooch falls away and is lost, and the cloak with it, and the man perishes from the cold. So it is with us. If the bard should ever take the druid's road west, it would be a black day for the Cymry. For what is there to hold a people together who do not remember their past? No one answered him, for we had reached the top, and the hospitality of Dennis Poise awaited us. But that, O oh my children, is a story for another day.